We are rocking here at Real Tales from the Bar Side. This is the podcast where we talk about the shit that goes on in the bar, in the restaurant, with people who own the bar, own the restaurant, run the bar, run the food, do everything and see everything. Don't ever do something or say something that you don't want seen, especially in New York at the bar, because we're watching and talking about it here on Real Tales from the Bar Side. All right, welcome to Real Tales from the Bar Side. We've got a really special edition episode here where I'm the guest. Your host, Matt Flynn, is the guest, and we have producers meet the host at Real Tales from the Bar Side going on today, where our producer, Court Dunn, who has been kind of the sly backdoor reference producer doing all the things that we kind of throw some fun shade at and to with all the love in the world and the sidelines, previous episodes, here to interview me. So, Court, welcome to the microphone. None of that's true. Somebody didn't show up, and I'm being held against my will. (laughs) It's partially true. But you did ask me during the last session, why haven't you had me as a guest yet? Your wish, your wish is my just, command. Your wish know. is my command. You're here. I th- in the moment, I thought it was a good you idea. You wanted now to I'm talk to me. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I guess, interview you. Let's now. dance, man. Yeah, let's do it. Talk to me. Um, now, a warning: I don't have the same, like, bubbly composure that you do when it comes to hosting. I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm a little more dry. That's fine. I think the world needs a little dryness. All right, let's, let's keep it dry. Ooh, actually, that's in theme there. Keeping and it dry. Keeping it dry. Teetotaling. All right, let's kick it off. Let's take it uh, to the back to the beginning. We're both from Marshfield. We're both from Marshfield, Massachusetts, a beautiful coastal town south of Boston, about 30 minutes between Boston and Plymouth on the water. So I know about Marshfield, but our listeners have probably been hearing, like, you know, references here and there about Marshfield. Tell us what Marshfield is, what it means to you. Marshfield's the motherland. The 02050, specifically the 02041 Green Harbor, where I grew up, is uh, it's the motherland, man. That's where I feel most at home. I love it. I miss it. I enjoy going back. And it it sucks that I don't have a um, a career that really brings me there as often as I'd like to be because it it really is home. It doesn't suit my personality because I'm just I really like the New York lifestyle, the L.A. lifestyle, just late night, things always going on, um, the option to be quiet and still, but more often than not, the option to do other things, too. And and Marshfield is one of those beautiful coastal towns where bars close at 1230, and you can't get anything to eat unless you want to swing by Tedeschi's, which I think is now turned into a 7-Eleven. Don't get me started is on it that. Not? Yeah. That's and, disappointing. And grab a prepackaged sandwich um, in the middle of the night. Everything just shuts down early, and it doesn't really... As long as the Ming is still around, then we're, we're good. The Ming Dynasty. Love it. Love that um, as a child. How often do you go back? I, I'm there about four times a year now. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that's I, more than I'm, I'm in Boston a, a bit, and I'm in Marshfield probably about four times a year, um, a week at a whack. And your family is still technically there. But yeah. is it mostly for friends or family? Or? It's not even technically. My family in its entirety is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, with the exception of a cousin that I have out in uh, California. So they're all there. And I usually go back to spend time with them and, and see. I have probably half a dozen friends that I consider family 
they spend time with and then people that are the next tier I just don't get to see as often as I'd like to that I try and make time for. See, I literally don't have any friends left in Marshfield. Now, maybe there's some out there listening right now who are like, hey, I'm your friend. I knew you in high school. <laughs> we can still be friends. But for me, I had a, a handful of friends back in the day that are now have all like left. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's like all my friends who I once had there are all gone. David Jamian, shout out. Yeah. San Diego. Yep. Who else? There's not many of them. Catabia. Mike Catavia, Rhode Island. Yeah, I think last yeah. time I talked to him. And then we get a lot. Lo- we get a lot here. We get a lot of guys here. Yeah, um, we get a lot of guys here. And that's that's great. That's actually it's it's. Should we plug them? Strange. Should we? They know who they, they are. They know who they are. They're not listening to this. They don't deserve a plug. Yeah. Well, we're unmarried, Court. We're unmarried. We're in dangerous territory. Mid- Marshfield single guys who graduated in 2000 who live in New York City and are single. Yeah. That's yeah. us. And there's only two left. Mid approaching. Who's going to go first? There's a great line I'm going to paraphrase or maybe nail directly. I don't give myself enough credit from True Detective Season 1 where Woody Harrelson's being interviewed about McConaughey and he says, a certain point, a man without a family is uh, <clears throat> a dangerous man. And it's something to that effect where it's kind of like, we get weird if we go unchecked and single for too long. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I think I'm starting to feel that. I'm, st- I'm starting to feel weird, man. Yeah, I have a girlfriend now, and it just feels really weird. Well, marriage is kind of cool. I mean, I think it's interesting. I've always had the take where it's just, why not get married when you're 50? And you're kind of like, yeah, we're living longer, and, yeah, this, and is, this is the one, this is it. You can I have kids before that if you want out of wedlock. I think it's a fucking crazy government and religion and like fundamentalist sort of institution that they use to try and, this is the cynic in me, by the way, tried to control us and give us tax breaks and make us you know, not think about what's actually going on around us. But it's also a beautiful thing if you find the one you love before that. I mean, do you think that, do you think you'll ever get married? I mean, you've been, you're about as single as any man I know. Yeah, and it's by design. It's kind of, I, I'm sick of hearing myself say that. It's become just a bit of a mantra that it's by design. It, it is. I have a weird crazy thing in my head that I have to be at a certain place professionally before I can entertain the idea of a serious long-term leading towards marriage relationship. And it's one of those things where... Why can't the two coexist? It makes no fucking sense. It really is kind of strange and parabolic because I don't want a woman who wants to be taken care of. I'm attracted to independent, strong-willed women, yet I want to be in a position where I could provide entirely for someone else it's a psychological ego driven thing that i I haven't quite worked through all right that being said (laughs) no career in therapy for you my friend yeah (laughs) my transitions are terrible i'm just gonna like pivot hard left i'm gonna embrace it so you moved to new york city when (laughs) <laughs> moving along the worst <laughs> I just told everybody I'm I'm a terrible transition you've been warned audience listening audience has this been is warned. gonna it's yeah court gets, just so we're clear on this court gets very uncomfortable with any sort of real emotional conversation so we're not going to be able to get too deep on this we'll bring in another interviewer for people who actually want to know more about my psyche I'm not sure why you would but this won't be that episode I moved to New York in the fall of 2007 uh, Billy Callahan. There's a shout out for you. Billy the gymnast. Backflip Billy, who used to go to bars and do backflips nightly, at least once, 
to the uh, amazement literally of, of beautiful young women and much to my chagrin having seen so many and he's just a fucking great guy he was a really good dude to me and he uh worked for Cirque du Soleil and had an apartment on the Upper East Side and he FedExed me the keys and said you can have my apartment with my roommate for uh, a month while I'm out of town I'm on tour with Cirque and I said sure let's do this and I map quested directions because that's what you did in 2006 2007 rather and uh, I had my buddy Chicken and my buddy Hud you have a buddy named Chicken I have a buddy named Chicken Dave Richardson and Hud Josh Huddleston two of the finest Drive me down in HUD's cherry red Beamer. He fired up the Beamer and drove me down to New York City. I'd never been here. He just dropped me off. Actually, I had. I'd been here a couple times in high school, but I thought I was in You're Queens. You're skipping the most important question. Why did you come to New York City? I, I, I'm an actor. And it, it just, there's only so much you can do in Boston. Let's take it back. What were you doing? Like, What's your background in acting in Boston? So my background in acting, I always wanted to write. I always wanted to write. I was always a film junkie from the time I saw the Ewoks Battle Endor at two. I was just a mad dog for movies. Masterpiece. Oh, one of the best. And I never really thought I could do it necessarily because I just didn't understand that I was eligible for that kind of world. But when I went to college at UMass Boston, I was taking a screenwriting course and I met a woman that I fell head over heels madly, insanely love for. I was just like, I want to do what she does and be where she is, and she was an actress. So I chased her into the theater program just as an elective. And I think there was a, a shortage of just like tall, obviously straight men in the theater department. So the, the theater heads after the class were like, stay, stay here. You, you, should, you should consider continuing it. And I loved it. I caught the bug for it pretty early on and I still wanted to be around her and so I started auditioning for plays the first audition one of the most terrifying moments in my life for Romeo and Juliet I think I just screamed the entire line the the entire monologue for Tybalt it's basically I got the part what I did in the role as well it's just terrified and I uh, can't imagine you you doing theater you can't imagine me doing theater I don't think I've seen you do theater before really yeah interesting no I, that's where my training is I did I followed their advice and I stuck with it can you it. give us a little a little, little you know excerpt an excerpt yes you want me to do a fucking Shakespearean monologue yeah, right now I, I can't I, I wish I had one on the fly to just throw at you but that's not really how acting works that's kind of like telling a comedian. Oh, oh, really? So yeah, I'm, I'm being that guy, that guy yeah. at the party. That's like... You're being the guy that doesn't understand the craft at all. And shame on you, filmmaker. Good God, man. It was a test. Yeah, I'm giving to, you a I lesson. wanted to see how you'd answer that. You passed. You're a true actor. <laughs> Thank you. So I. So, but why, why didn't you go to L.A.? Why, why New York? So I wanted to go to L.A., and the plan the whole time was to go to L.A. Because, mainly, I was still acting, but the girl in question I was dating, tons of love, Kristen, she moved to L.A., and we had a long-distance thing for a brief window. didn't work, kind of fell apart, and I wanted to just go out there with her. And she wanted to do it on her own. She wanted to check things out and kind of have this experience for herself, and I give her a ton of credit for that to this day. She's still there and doing really well for herself. And the whole goal was to really get out there, finish college, stay involved with theater and training, and the summer I was to go out there, I worked for the Nantucket Film Festival, 
as the assistant development director, and everybody there was from New York. And for some reason, somebody said to me, don't go to L.A. Trust me. Go to New York. L.A. actors are afraid of New York actors. And there was some, this wasn't even a guy I knew well, but I respected him. And the delivery of it and the way he said it, the passion, I was just kind of like sold. I was in. It just made sense to me. And it was even more terrifying because even though it's closer to home, the idea of not having a car really scared the shit out of me. That was always my real independent attachment. Like that made me me to have a vehicle and to be able to go wherever I wanted to go at any time. So losing that was difficult for me, but I was sold on it. And I came here to train. I wanted other actors to be afraid, to be scared of what it was going to be like going into an audition room that I'd been in or that I was going into next. I really wanted to be that guy. And I came here and I studied for six years with a coach and I became that guy. And you got a job as a bartender. I got a job as a bartender. Was that right away or is that re more recent? Uh, it was I'm trying to remember. Recent. So it was interesting, bartending. the timeline. When I came to New York, I was working in a theater company that I'm still involved with called The Improbable Players. And they're a, a really wonderful not-for-profit group that goes into mainly schools, middle schools, high schools, and colleges, and does original works on alcohol and drug awareness. And it's all actors who are professional and also have at least a year of sobriety and recovery. So when I moved out here, I had that kind of built in. That was my air quotes job where they needed someone to run the New York troupe because it's a Boston-based company, but we do have jobs in New Jersey and New York. And at the time, business was booming. We had tons, so they really needed me to come down and do this. So I came down. We had two or three shows a week, which was really nice, and that went on for a while, and then it dried up. It was just gone. There was We went back to like two or three shows every year. Not quite, maybe, maybe half a dozen a year, and I needed money badly. And somebody told me, one of the actors in that group said, Dude, you're in the union? Because at that point I had worked on the box and I had done a couple industrial commercials and a few things. So I was in SAG. He said, just do background work, man. It's so easy and it's really good union money. And my ego was not feeling that. I did not want to do it. I had tried it once in Boston just to get experience on a set and I wasn't feeling it at all. So begrudgingly, based on necessity, I tried it. But you did background for a little while, right? I did, and I ended up kind of sticking with it. In and fact, fun fact, I did background for two episodes. Which one? Oh, uh, Girls. You were on Girls, huh? No, 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 not Girls. Um, uh, fucking, what the what the fuck's the name of that show? With um, I'm going to forget. One's, you already have. I, I've literally forgotten. Uh, what? White No. Uh, the one with the... the I thought Gossip it was Girl. Girls. Oh, my God. You're Gossip, Gossip Girl. That was tough. I was I, wearing a suit in the back of like a fancy party yeah i wouldn't work on that because i think it was one of the first jobs i had and i got into it with a wardrobe and then they had a weird cw deal where they would pay you less money and i all, all i already felt like a piece of shit doing it and the people that do background i feel work, like your ego is much too big to be in the, the background of any it, scene it very much is and <laughs> i'm glad you agree oh 100 percent. but it, it's my training too like i've worked so hard to be at a question place. when you were on set and you were doing background you know what, what do they call it when you're supposed to be like talking quietly Oh, you're not supposed to be talking at all. You're supposed to be pantomiming. Pantomiming. Yeah. Were you ever tempted to out-act 
the people in the foreground no. and fucking pantomime the shit out of that scene I took, and just no. wow everyone. As the, as we uh, we showcased in the background anthem, which was kind of True. my ta- real tales from the bar side response to background work, um, which is available on on YouTube still and, and Vimeo background That's anthem. That's a decent amount of views. I yeah, think. it's got yeah. like close to fifty thousand or maybe a little more. It's hilarious. People really <laughs> responded well to it. It's a parody video about background work set to Eminem's Lose Yourself uh, and we rap different lyrics that are ridiculous over it and it just became such a I, I, I don't believe in this I don't take it seriously I don't enjoy that I feel that way because I have a strong work ethic and I don't like where my mind is going with it so, so the pantomime sort of stuff was just so ridiculous to me and I'm not somebody who overacts or really believes in that sort of thing I, it was just more of a laissez-faire attitude where if, if anything if they were to ever direct me if i were certainly over somebody's shoulder right away they might say do more rather than less right but i i pretty quickly pivoted to stand-in work which is interesting and the people who do background work are, for are, those who don't know explain the difference between background will. and stand yeah okay. totally okay, cool. i totally will I just I just want to say that the background actors and the people that do that work are just so critical to the process. And it did give me a wonderful insight to how important that is. And the people who do that work love it, by and large. And I just, it wasn't me. I was so trapped in it that I couldn't enjoy it at all. And it just frustrated me. But that's not to knock the position. It's just to say that I really was wildly unhappy in it. Just the same way that I may not love bartenders, bartending i enjoy it certainly more than background work but um there are people who adore it and they're so good at it because it's what they love and what they want to do so stand-in work is something that i feel like every background actor myself included just feels like they are on top of the world if they're doing as opposed to background acting it's a step up it's a step up but it's really the, the ceiling it doesn't really get higher because you're not being featured on camera that that's the irony no right and and i didn't want to be because if i was on camera i wanted to be seen doing what i'm trained for and actually acting not like oh my god there he is look look so stand-in work was better for me because you get a slight bump in pay and a background actor or an extra are people who are in the background that you see that are just filling space whereas a stand-in you have to have the same general height hair color and skin tone as principal actors that way while you watch rehearsals they're doing their acting they're doing what they're going to do in the scene you watch that and you basically mimic it for the crew during the lighting setup that way the actors can go into hair and makeup after a rehearsal and while they're getting ready into costume and having all their makeup done the stand-ins do what they did and allow the crew to light them properly so that way when everything's done with the actor they step right in and shoot and what's the end game for that because you said that you can you move up from that? Can you network from I that? I mean, you, you can network anywhere. So networking's a thing, but I'm a big believer in when you show people what you do, they're going to think of you in that light. And networking, sure, I met some really great people, but I don't want people to think of me in that light. That's not the light to think of me in. I'm an actor, and I busted my ass to become one. And if you think of me, think of me as an actor you can think of me as a bartender because it's a totally different industry and i'm not one of those people where my ego is just oh man i'm more than a bartender that's a totally separate thing but when you're in the film business and television business and you're doing not what you want to be doing 
and you're also being seen in that light, that was crippling for me. I think that I had the same equivalent in retail. When I was directing, I picked up some retail work just to supplement my income. I started associating with being a retail worker. It kind of fucks with your head. Not that, that that's no disrespect to people who are working retail because I have a lot of appreciation for like great retail experiences. But that being said, let's face it, like anybody in retail, 99% of them do not want to be in retail. We do it to, you know, again, supplement our income. But then you start to associate it and fucks with your ego. Like I had done a music video with like Common and then I was in like a Warby <laughs> Parker selling people glasses or an Apple store, you know, yeah. getting shit on by an old lady who's like, you know, teach me how to use all the settings in the settings menu. Yeah. And I'm like, but, you know, and this <laughs> might have even been going on at the same time that that shit was happening. So I get what you're saying. And I think this is maybe a good transition to you bartending is that when you're in New York City, there's there's always, it's like a polarization. If you're do, working on your art or your career, there's always going to be, how are you paying your bills? And they don't necessarily connect until you've really put in your time and somehow sure. yeah. made it, I guess. Absolutely. And I just, I think it's important to note your backstory is you were a wildly successful indie hip hop music video director. I caught, I caught some early you success. You caught some fire, man. Really, I mean, you were yeah. in a, a top 10 to watch list and what double xl or the so like like well, i remember one yeah, of the big had... magazines picked you up as one of the guys and like then you're again you're you're in an apple store and a world parker yeah super ironic because i i didn't make any money doing that shit so that you know for me it was like all cool and all on facebook that everybody thinks that i'm doing cool shit but if you're actually struggling to pay for fucking dunkin donuts then like that's some conflicting shit yeah so i ended up working retail this is interviews becoming about me, but no, we'll I think it it's important to go back and forth and yeah. really kind of see the similarities, especially in New York, where creatives do have to provide for themselves. Right, and what's interesting about it is you chose bartending, I assume, because it was the lesser of two evils and something that you actually enjoyed doing as like a because ultimately it's like you got to pay the bills. So what are you going to do? You're going to get a job. What job do you want? I've hopped around a lot of jobs because a lot of them suck. Um, now, mind you, I've worked for cool companies, but if the shit is taking up all your time or you're not, it, it's just fucking with you and not allowing you to work on the stuff you're doing on the side, then you got to keep it moving and get to the next one. Which mm -hmm. brings me to your your job as a bartender. It sounds like you're able to do that. It's interesting. Bartending, it provides a certain, um, it's another level than waiting tables for me because I've had experiences as a teenager waiting tables and the money's fine, and you get to go home earlier. It's just like there's a lot of perks to being a server. But the association for me is much like what you're talking about being in retail, where too many people are fucking with you. You don't really have any power or authority. And it fucks with you enough, like you say, to really be doing one big thing and then another that's not necessarily so glamorous. But to be in charge and responsible for a bar, to have that power and responsibility... I really thrive when I'm given a lot of responsibility as an actor, as a bartender, as a person. Plus, you are, even though you're getting shit on sometimes by customers, you are at the center of attention, so it's not fucking with your ego as much. It's not nearly fucking with my ego. And in much. a way, you're on, you're on your own stage in that way. And if they fuck with me, I have an infinite number of choose-your-own-adventure options to respond with. Which many I've seen. Yeah. In includes ripping boards off the <laughs> side of a wall and... Using when them to strike. it's appropriate, yeah, yeah, it, it, and it's interesting to be able to have that freedom, 
because it is parallel to acting where you have an almost infinite amount of choices. Which one are you going to make? Which one's appropriate? Do you want to try something that maybe isn't the best one just to try it? I have that freedom as a bartender and I can parallel that with what I do as an actor and it it really helps rather than hinders. I actually really enjoy bartending. To be perfectly honest, I would love what I do and I may not ever want to leave it until I was really killing it as an actor 100% if the hours were a little better. I went to bed at 8 o'clock this morning. Yeah, that shit will fuck with you. 8 a.m., man, with the time change, the, the hour lost and everything. It was 8 o'clock and I got up at noon. It was just a lot, you know, with the travel and the tra- and it, that's really what kicks my ass. It's not the actual job. But you work Thursday to Sunday? So, yeah, Thursday through Sunday nights. And Thursday nights, I can usually get out of there by 3. But, again, by the time I'm home and wound down, it's more 5.30 before I get to bed. Sundays, I can escape by 2, typically. So we're looking more like 4.30. But Friday and Saturdays are nuts. And then I try and get myself right side up for the week because I have fit modeling jobs and auditions right. and other shit that I'm doing all and the And one positive about that schedule Albeit you're working a shit ton in a small amount of time, you have like three or four days off. I'm kind of jealous of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have a shit ton of time if you want to focus on that. We're going to save that until we get back from a commercial break. Sounds good. I'm Court Dunn, your host. Thanks for tuning in. Motherfucker. Real Tales from the Bar Side. Social media, huge part of branding these days. Do I sound like a Gen Xer who's really getting taught some things by a millennial? Because I'm late to the game and I'm really resistant, but we've got some cool shit going on our social media page, mainly Instagram, at Tales Barside. Also a Twitter handle, which I'm gonna start trying to use a little bit more. We have a Facebook page, Real Tales from the Barside, but mainly make sure you're following us on Instagram. You're getting all kinds of crazy videos we upload and news on our latest podcasts. Just some funky stuff at Tales Barside on Instagram. And we're back. Fuck it, man. I'm hey, sa- I'm supposed to say that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that commercial break. I'm your host, Court Dunn. I'm really, really starting to like this. This is nice. Are you? Yeah. Are you? Can you leave? I'll just interview myself. <laughs> Fucking tuning um, in. What is this? War of the Worlds? When we <laughs> just watched a documentary about that. Um, so, yeah, you were um, making the common misconception most people do about my. But you have so much time. Four day work week and all the time it affords me. So, I basically do, um, not basically, I do a 45 to 50 hour work week in four days and it's upside down hours. And when it's turned right side up, I have to juggle auditions. A lot of times I have a, a rep in L.A. that I do self-tapes for that I have to go, and and that's a whole different so process. So you're, you're super active because we don't ever get a chance to, like, talk about what you're what you're working on, like, for the most part. No. Like, I'll hear, I, oh, you're in Gotham or whatever, but then I don't know what your auditioning pro- audition process is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tough. Last year was, was tough because that was the first year they really said, okay, we're not going to submit you for things that are small anymore. So, which is an awesome thing to hear your reps say and have them believe you in you for, but it also affords you a far, far fewer opportunities if you don't already have a name. And so I would only get into certain rooms. I think I had like six auditions last year and I booked three of them. 
So my batting average is kick ass. I just have a hard time getting into these rooms. So now it becomes, what can I do? So what can I do? All right, new headshots. Bam, that's a whole new thing. My fit modeling agents want me to get new headshots or uh, model shots for them. So that's a whole new thing. Now I have fit modeling jobs that I book through them. I have auditions that I have to prep for and go do during the week. Acting is an interesting one because you don't necessarily control your fate. Like if I want as a filmmaker want to be like, I'm going to be a filmmaker, you know, I, I shouldn't just talk about it. I should go do it. And you do it and you keep filming and then you get into film festivals and you kind of guide your own fate. Sure. As an actor, you're kind of at the whim, at the mercy of these like somebody choosing you, right? Well, yeah. And, and it's, it's very much like the way I've talked to you guys about, all right, cool. I know your time is limited to do a lot of this stuff with the podcast. What can I do to help? It's the same thing with my my reps, my agents. I went to them and said, okay, I only got in six rooms last year. What can I do to help? It's not all on you. I need to be active in as much of my fate as I can possibly guide, which, to your point, is limited. And she just recently said, listen, go to this company, get a scene that you can kind of tweak writing-wise. People won't know what it's for or what it's from of a police interrogation. We need 60 to 90 seconds of you doing a police interrogation and we're going to use that to push you we're going to put that up on the the breakdown site and submit that to casting directors because a lot of new york is police right. roles but they're not submitting me as the beat cop or anything anymore it's more in-depth stuff and in order to get that they need to see that i can do it and if i don't have credits which i do i have a, a really wonderful resume now that i'm grateful for that i'm proud of but i want more i always want more so it now I have to figure that out, and it's a matter of setting it up, rehearsing it, finding the script, tweaking it, rewriting it. It's just all this stuff, and it's kind of like, when do you do laundry? When do you sleep? When do you go to the bank? When do you sleep? When do you do the normal shit? And it's, it's why I'm completely astounded by parents, because I couldn't do what I do with a child. And, and I'm the type of person that thinks I can do everything, and I just couldn't. I can barely do what I do now, period. So throw throw a kid into that mix tons of love and respect to the parents out there before you had this schedule as a bartender with a few days off in a row do you think you're more productive now or were you like where does it fall like as far as your previous side gigs and it's better because it's routine and as fucked up as a routine as it is it is a routine, and it's something I can set my watch to, whereas if I were doing stand-in work still, not only would I be really feeling down in myself based on what we were talking about earlier on a psychological standpoint, but it's also, all right, cool, so you have this job, and we don't know what days you work, but it'll be, here's the schedule, and it's subject to change at a moment's notice, so it's very difficult to plan around. Um, so this is a much better fit all around for me as far as making money goes and as far as just mental health and being the best I can be when it comes time for me to walk into an audition room. If a young, budding actor walked into the bar, sat down and said, you're an actor, you've been in New York City for how long? A little over 10 years. 10 years. What sh what kind of job should I get to supplement my income? What would you tell them to do? Would you say, "Hey, go be a bartender," or would you say, "Ah, don't do this. It this is will fucking distract the fuck out of you. Go do background." Like, what would you suggest to someone else? I personally, for anybody who's really serious about acting, I I, I couldn't possibly, with good conscience, suggest background or stand in work, except 
for experience on sets, which is invaluable. And coming out of school or programs, you do not know what that's like until you're there. It's a 200-person-plus set crew. Everybody's there. The mics are on. They're in your face. Craft services. It's all around. You re- and everything's on you when it's go time. It's a hurry-up-and-wait position. But when it's your time to shine, these people are all here to make damn sure that you're good. So you need to make damn sure that you're ready to do what you have to do in that moment. And the pressure of it, I get off on, man. I It excites the shit out of me, and I, I really use that to my advantage. And you don't really know what it's like until you're there. So I think standing in and doing background work is really cool for people that have never been on a set that are beginning their career as actors. And I also had a really interesting experience on Gotham where I was the middle guy for the first time. I wasn't just a walk-on with a couple lines or something. Like I was the middle guy where, and it was so noticeable with the size of the role and the work I was putting in that the stand-ins and some of the core background were coming up and kind of talking to me. And one guy in particular was really curious about, like, how did you get to where you are? It made me realize, oh, shit, I'm that guy. But then again, like the Donal Logues and the Sean Pertwees that I'm sitting down in the director's chair with, I want to know how they got where they are, and I'm picking their brains. So it was a really interesting in-the-middle kind of experience. Yeah, that's one of those um, – I'm trying to think of the word for it. But in the over the course of your career, you have these like high, key like highlight – highlightable moments that will always like stick with you yeah i feel like that one is like okay I'm, i've made it i don't say i've made it because sometimes people are like oh, i never make it but i'm at a new level. you're at a new level i'm at a new you level. advanced yeah in the game i'm very in, big on chapterization and as much as i'm good with where i'm at right now i can feel that it's time for a new chapter i feel it it's speaking just of new chapters in me let's talk about the chapter in which we met wow king of the segue this is like a fucking Quentin Tarantino movie. I'm taking you back. Like you thought you were at, at like the end of the episode. What's Matt doing now? What's next? No. The gold watch. Let's take it back to the beginning. <laughs> I held this. Let's take it back. Metal in my ass to the crow's nest. Oh no, we got to go back further than that. So you and I, in high school, I, I just always had this kind of like, hey, there's Court Dunn. Sort of like nod. You made me smile. Like, when I, whenever I saw you, I had positive thoughts in my head, but we never really connected. I can't believe that, but... No, you, you were I was just very shy. Like, very you were shy. shy, but you had an aura and an energy about you that was positive. And whenever I saw you, it was just kind of a silent acknowledgement. And there's different people that I think we're friends with now that on different levels, I had shades of that. But with you, it was always... I always had positive thoughts of you. When I saw you, it was like, oh, cool. There he goes. Like, there's that dude. But Yeah, I tried to be like... Hey, I play Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm also friends with John Aruka. <laughs> Aruka's a good man. Yeah. He's a good he's dude. He's great. But they, again, there were guys that like like Aruka and like Tim even that were just like, they're in different yeah. facets of the high school experience that I wasn't a part of and I was in a different facet that they weren't a part of. So I feel like when I walked by them, there was a respect and an admiration, but kind of a a questioning too and with you it was just like that's a good guy i just thought you were a good dude but we didn't know each other that well through mutual friends we ended up hanging out in plymouth i think during college it was years. like yeah early college summers when i'd be back home doing things i don't do now like work out yeah. and like not drink right and yeah. i i was sober at that point and so i was hanging out with people that weren't necessarily doing the things that i was doing in high school yeah we'd be out with like mike Atavia. he'd be getting a, a red bull and something and and, and just and curling waitresses <laughs> and just 
working out, to get into trouble. working out in the crow's nest. Trying to get into, Mikey into trouble, but going home like alone in Mike Davia's like truck every every weekend night. <laughs> well, it was it, it created Tupac. a bond. It yeah. created a bond that was really cool. But so by the time I moved to New York, we had something. Yeah, it was one of those things where we weren't friends in high school, but then we were oh cool, like we were. We we can I don't know we can be friends now yeah, I guess yeah I and, and then professionally too on top of that you would come out of um, film school and college at Fitchburg and making Midnight feature film and that I saw and I had a, a huge respect for the undertaking and you were doing music videos in New York when I showed up at that point it was kind of like oh we should collaborate. I was already doing that yeah I think okay. you were interesting you might have just been because I feel like I was it. before I even got into that I was. I was here for like five years. Yeah, no, you'd been here at least yeah. three, I think, okay. at that point. So I was probably dabbling at that point. Um, yeah, and then you moved down, and how the fuck did we start hanging out? It was just the group. I think. Uh, well, I started hanging Corbett. out with uh, the same way that like I wasn't friends with you. I wasn't really friends with uh, Mandeville and Tim and These those guys just, again. And it, like we just kind of were like we're both in the same city and we're from the same place, so I guess we have st- something in common. And you're in. New York City, it's actually can be hard to meet friends at first. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like, oh, I guess, you know, we have something in common. And I knew no one. I moved in with people that I found on Craigslist after I did the month at Billy Cal's. And um, from there, I, you know, I had that job working <clears throat> with the, the film troupe. Or, I'm sorry, the theater troupe. But there were like three people. And we'd do our stuff and leave. It's not like I had people that I connected with that I'd go out and hang with. So, yeah, you showed up. And then we were all hanging in the, like, Marshfield expat community here. exactly yeah and you'd just be like causing you know confrontations at the uh, super bowl games and all these things oh yeah and yeah then, yeah i was a little bit of a maniac at 25 when i showed up here i was uh, i was but definitely you, and you were off. sober obviously that yeah point too um yeah we i think we just naturally gravitated towards each other because we of that group we were both like pursuing the artistic endeavors sure and we were definitely just and on a different trajectory from our yeah. other friends Totally. Yeah. And this whole single thing and mm-hmm. all that. So, and then we started working together. Yeah. And what was the first thing we worked on? Do you remember? Maybe audition. No, I had to be uh, background anthem was before that, I think, right? I think you you started out as kind of a hired gun where uh, we, we'd throw you money to film the, the music videos, the parody music videos that we were doing. And then you were kind of like, I have an idea. Yeah. Yeah, was audition the first one? I feel like there was a couple. Winter uh, night. Winter, winter night. night was the winter first night. one. That's what it was. I had a very high concept idea uh, about you walking through the snow, and that was it. And that was it. And that's really a lot of your ideas. It's it's ha- fucking half a ambiguous. Sentence, half a sentence, and then you know we're Good expected luck. to execute. I was sick for two weeks after that. You prick. I was wearing a wool coat. It's a masterpiece. Check it out. It's really beautiful. And and big props to not only you for shooting, but. Um, Whoever you had did the music. It's haunting. People love that when they listen to it. Yeah, I was in a different place back then. I was really in the whole, like, artsy to be artsy vibe, which I've since really, I'm not so much into that anymore. Like, I like the minimalist and long take stuff aesthetically, but I don't like stories that are about nothing anymore. Right. (laughs) Um, But not that there's anything wrong with that. There are some great uh, I think you just did two Seinfeld references in one sentence. I appreciate it. Unintentional. Never seen Seinfeld before. Get the fuck just, out of just here. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Obviously. There's no way that's possible. We're in the comic strip. That would be a, like a huge sin. No, it would, man. This is Jerry's Jerry's jump off. Um. Yeah. So then we, I think 
started working on a few projects. Audition for Back to the Future, which was another one that that's my I, favorite. Yeah, that's still my favorite. It is a fucking masterpiece, just... in my opinion. You're <laughs> like you really shine, and I, the reason why I think that that's one of your best works is because you play yourself in a way that like I don't know how to explain this. Harry and I, I think, have talked about this before. It's just like there's this level of acting where when you forget your acting and you just truly are yourself you like you're a big personality and like you're a character in your own right so when you just are that character even though it's not the same person and like act like a fucking crazy man as you would say uh yeah you just shine thank you thank you i I enjoy one of the things i love about working with you is the same thing that drives me crazy at first which is that there's really no direction you just trust me to work but it's within the framework of that half a second well if i don't say anything you're, you're doing it right that's right, my and that's, I feel like that is, from what my experience has been on film sets, film and TV, that it's very different in theater. There is a similarity to it, but the notes, if they're not coming in film and TV, it's because you get too many other things to worry about, and you're happy with the performance, whether it's technical stuff, more often than not technical stuff. But it's just great to be trusted, and I loved that you were just kind of like, all right, yeah, I have an idea about like kind of an idea of an and actor yeah, spiraling blah, 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 and an go. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Why don't we do like a Back to the Future thing? Because we both love Back to the Future. It's like, okay. It's just a descent into madness. I knew you could pull that off. It's a lot of fun. If, if you uh, have access to YouTube, and, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't. But what's funny about that one is that video I thought would go viral. And it never really did. It's, Joe it's, Blow picked it up. And I remember yeah. that being kind of like, cool, man. It's long. Because that was right at the peak. It's what, what like is it? eight, almost eight, almost nine, eight minutes. minutes? Yeah. I think it's almost eight minutes. And, and that's a long video for now. It was right at the pinnacle where things were starting to change on the attention span front. Mm-hmm. And everything was just more and more and more and more and more. Two or three more. minutes or whatever. And uh, we hit, I think we got a relationship in five minutes and right under the wire. So, yeah, that brings me to the, the, net, the point I was trying to make was that relationship in five minutes was kind of like a literal have some ideas Let's, because we have a mic, I think was the real reason. We had like a, the boom mic. Yeah. The forest held. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, I had some ideas and just wanted to make something. But that one was never like, oh, this is going to go viral because that was just like a f- artsy relationship thing where you're looking at the camera. Well, it was but an somehow... improv exercise in my view. And, and I remember you had that idea and we did one take and it went about Well, 12, I had five ideas. Minutes. And uh, mind you, let's, let's <laughs> tell the story right. You guys didn't even want to be there. Let's, let's just, let's just well, we fucking... had just done a long weekend of shooting back in Marshfield for in, in the freezing cold. Was it after cold. that? It was, we we okay. still had the equipment because of that shoot. I thought it was after Forrest's... Um... No, it was right after A Girl Named Cinema. Okay. And um, we came back. We were wiped out. And you said, if you guys are around tomorrow, after, late afternoon, come by. Have a night, few ideas to talk about. And we thought it was just ideas. And you came... We shot it against the wall in my Yeah, my you were like, I have five ideas to shoot. You liked like, that okay, one of the it. best of all. We're no, the like, only. The only. Yeah, exactly. The only. The other four, I was like, eh. I, w- I would mm. love to find that notepad mm. with the other four ideas because <laughs> but, maybe they're all gems. But you hit it like with the one. Yeah. That was well, it. Well, you guys chose And we were it like, too. yes, that's okay. actually a great, not not just because like, the other ones could have been great ideas, but I didn't feel like it resonated with me and you were asking to shoot them right then and there. So it was kind of like, yeah. so you want to shoot this now? And we did like eight takes or whatever. And I think we did f- two. I think no, we did two. I, no, I think we did like eight takes, and I think it was the fifth one, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I only remember yeah. one being like 12, 13 minutes. Yeah. And then 
I was just kind of being like, all right, let's go. Let's just, I did it as an improv exercise and I figured we were going to venture it and there was going to be 99 of these things. And this was a great lesson for me yeah. is to never record anything as an exercise. If it's on tape, if you're filming it, be 110% invested in what you're doing. Because I remember when we watched that, I was pissed. Because for me as an improver, it felt really wonderful as a showcase of what could be done with improv. But as an actor, I, I, I was just doing it to, to, to speed it up. It was really just a speed issue. So I was pretty fucking bummed when we got out of that. I was hard on myself for that. And then it blew up. And of course, everybody's well, talking about how beautiful it is. Dialing it back real quick, it didn't blow up right away. What's interesting, and I think it's a really good takeaway for anyone who's creating anything or in releasing anything, it doesn't matter. You don't have to like release it right when you edit it or whatever. I think we sat on it for like almost a year. It I was a couple say. months. It okay. was a few or, months okay. at least, yeah. And then finally, we got around to sending it out. I think I sent two uh, press release rounds, and on the second one's where it got picked up and ultimately ended up on Reddit front page. Yeah. So Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, crushed everything. Super cool, especially given the backstory we just told about us kind of like randomly reconnecting. Yeah. And kind of, that was a beautiful kind of moment. And I wasn't ready for it. Uh, like I said, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think you even had a Twitter, did you? I, I had nothing. Okay. I didn't have a website. I didn't ready. have, uh, and Autumn was really well situated. Stein got like a manager out of it, I think. I don't know if she's still with that manager or not. But. I'm not sure either. Yeah, she did get a manager, and she also, we also both got cast in a pilot that unfortunately didn't go anywhere that oh. I got a lead in, and it was really fun. It was an interesting experience called Eat the Rabbit, but. Yeah, it was something I really wasn't ready for. I remember the pilot, the the woman who created the pilot had to reach out to Autumn through her website to get in touch with me because I, I just wasn't prepared. I, I didn't have my shit together. And that instantly got me ready. It was like, okay, this can never happen again. I and just to put it into context, I think that within a week had over a million views. And yeah. now oh, it probably God, has yeah. 1.3 and it's kind of just chilling. But it really was like a an industry kind of... Explosion. Explosion. I went into an audition at CBS for Scorpion for the, the lead role uh, based on that. That's just how fascinating this stuff is. They were like, yeah, um, you got submitted to us? And we were like, wait a minute. We know this guy. Wasn't he in that video? And they called me in, and it's cool. I've been in for them since. And when something hits, I have a relationship built in with them now because of that. It's just it's really cool. Yeah, and then what's... For me, what's tough about that one was I always, per, like, perpetually after that was trying to redo that, which is crazy. And that, remember, to bring this that onto theme, is when I started drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember being like, oh, dude, I want to work with you more, but I want to work with you with the things that I think are so authentic to you. And I felt like a lot of what you were trying to do, again, like you said, was recreate that in yeah. an effort to get a viral following it's like i would say these days there's definitely and i would say anyone who's like a youtuber or like everyone's trying to like get a million views on consistently and like be like super self-important on social media and shit i was definitely guilty of that and i it's like an addiction you're like sure. wow i hit a million views how can i do that again you keep trying you keep trying you keep trying you do anything to try to do it like and to, i mean i had some music videos do that but, and Harry knows, we've worked on tons of videos. And we had to, to some success. But it's hard to get that, like, one million in a week. Yeah, and that's the dragon that you And then when you're trying chase. to do it, as we've discussed this, like, on, on other podcasts and stuff, when you're trying to do it, you're not going to do it. Right, because the motive isn't telling a good story or 
creating something right. from the heart. It's trying to get followers, totally. trying to get views. And, and that's the dragon I think you guys chase from where you sit. I have a really good friend um, that I haven't talked to in years. I had to call this guy. He's a good shit named Chris McGuire. And he shot a video called Harlem Reacts to the Harlem Shake during the Harlem yeah, Shake brilliant. craze. Yeah. And the same exact thing happened to him where it was just just this flood of followers and interviews and people wanting to talk to him about it. And, oh, my God, it's wonderful. And he just kept chasing that high. And for actors, it's not like that. For me, anyways, it's kind of just like, oh, man, I wish I had done this differently. Oh, fuck. Okay, cool. Well, how do I get to the next thing? It's just I don't really give it. It's nice to see the numbers go up. That was really cool. But that's not my dragon. That's not what I chase. And I think the takeaway, and not to get too Buddhist here, is that those numbers mean nothing. None of it means anything. It's kind of like, are you making this uh, work to impress your friends or to be like perceived as having a lot of views? Like That shit means nothing. It should be about creating something that you have the desire to create or making something that's just awesome or, I don't know, just creating rather than trying to impress people. Sure. Because ultimately, like you can impress people, but how long is that going to go on? How long can you perpetuate that? Like eventually you're going to be a very lonely person if you're just out there trying to impress people with views. It's uh, not healthy. I think it's really important, especially in that circumstance, to have a long view and say, all right, suppose best case scenario, I keep getting millions of views on these videos. What does that look like? Okay, I'm making some money from YouTube. I maybe don't have to do the support jobs that I'm now doing. But what the fuck? Am I happy with what I'm creating? And what's where do I go from there? And if you can't answer that question with certainty about what your vision is, then you're doing the wrong thing. So where are you going from here? For me, I really, really just want to book a series regular on a television show. Real quick, dial it back. Where, you, you were just in Gotham. Yeah. So that happened like last week, two weeks ago. It was released two weeks ago. It was released, yeah, recently. Tell us about that and then tell us about, okay, where that like leaves you poised. Well, it's a really cool part because it's creepy. It's Gotham and it's a really creepy scumbag, shit, heel, terrible person role. And there's a lot of meat to that. It's not just some kind of exposition-based character. There was something to it and it didn't get... I got a fair amount of screen time, too. So I think what I can get footage-wise from that, what I have now from it, that can be submitted along with the interrogation scene that I'll shoot soon and everything like that should get me into more rooms. Like, that is going to bump me up a little bit of a level. And from there, it's my job to take it even further. I really, really want a series regular job on a TV show. I really want to work on something that means the world to me personally and that I can support myself on. And I want to get back into theater. I want to be doing things that I are fulfilling me artistically and creatively and, and that challenge me because I just need a ton of stimulation. And I think that's where bartending actually really helps me right now is as much as it can bring me down and throw my schedule out of whack at times or always, I'm constantly stimulated and it, it makes me better when I'm busy. So my long goal, my real, my long goal right now is to start getting in the guest star conversation and series regular conversation for television shows. And given you have a podcast about bartending, are you like, hey, as soon as I get this first gig, I'm out. Fuck I'm, no. I'm out of bartending. No. Fuck you guys. Fuck you listeners. Listen, I, I'll do this till the cows come home. In fact, I really want to start talking about. Would real- you ever, real quick, 
hold on. Would you ever, you, you know, let's say you're, you get a huge role, you blow up, you have all this money. Would you uh, start your own bar? No, fuck no. Okay. Absolutely no interest. It's a miserable business to be an owner in. It's just too much stress, too much work. I would have to be making an insane amount of money and just be a silent investor in a project I really believed in to do that. But as far as the podcast goes, I get so much enjoyment out of this. I've started to think about when the career takes its next turn. Real tales from the film set. I was literally just going to make like that. Real, joke, real tales. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a thing that could happen. Yeah. Real tales from the parent, right. from from parenting or whatever totally. it is. Like, there's a lot of different stuff we could tackle. You could bring other hosts in to do other shows. I enjoy this. I really find uh, not just a, an outlet. I like this because it grounds like the context of what this um, podcast is about. Because we know that you're a bartender, and we know that you're passionate about the bar in which you work and that you're passionate about. We, but we also are afraid that you're going to abandon us. Never. I have my and own abandonment issues. I would never being put that an on actor. someone else. No, no. This is why I'm grilling you about the acting thing. I want to know, are you going to be here next week and the week after that and the week after that? Many hats, Did... Court Dunn. I wear many hats and I'll always wear many hats because I need that. And I, uh, as long as you guys are around to help me with your expert tutelage, Beverly Hills Cop 2. All right. That up. I'm a behind, Expert tutelage. I'm a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. You've exhausted me. Exhausted me. Now I need a drink. As a bartender, what do you suggest? Uh, the Tudor Tavern, in about 12 minutes, will have a wildly strong-willed, personality-driven bartender behind the stick, as Anthony Lebresco would say, ready to serve and pour all kinds of weird ciders and bizarre drafts that you drink. You got nothing, huh? Well, I'm, you know, I actually wanted you to suggest a drink for me. A drink? Yeah, like what? You know, a beer. I know you're not really a beer guy, though. I, I'm not in any guy, man. I drink <laughs> soda water with a splash. Of I know, crap. but you know, as a customer, I want to know. I want you to fucking tell me what to drink. I want to. I want to feel good. You're you know, a draft just, beer guy. I'm a draft beer guy. Yeah. Do you like a white beer? Like a wit? I'm more of an IPA guy these days. Really? Yeah. I find that very. Well, and what's funny is when I, I mean, just to kind of like filling a, a, a gap here i didn't drink until i was 25 so yeah and i i was made fun of because i like like you know like was drinking coronas because those were like the tastiest <laughs> like or not tastiest they were like the lightest beers it. yeah and then now i've kind of like made that full like tr- like full circle like yeah i actually do appreciate the taste of like an, an ipa well you're in luck because other half has just recently changed its flagship ipa from its traditional to green See, that's city. what I'm talking about. That's green what I want to hear on this fucking oh, podcast. Yeah. I want to hear you just, talking about it's just, drinks. No, no. What are we... All you're hearing right now is Eric Joyce coming out of my mouth. I don't know anything. I just regurgitate what he tells me to tell people. Thank so, you, Eric. That's it. Come have a beer. And thank you for interviewing me. What a fucking... Don't you dare end this thing. episode. I'm the host. I end it, oh, all right? God. So, Matt Flynn, thanks again for joining us today on your own show. Real tales from the bar side. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Really enjoyed this. In fact, uh, re- highly considering giving up all my career aspirations to direct film, video, and all that. And might just go into. Oh wait, I already am podcasting. Shameless plug. Wow. Conversations with superheroes. Soon to be another podcast, which we won't name now. Wow. It's all happening, folks. Tune in here. We'll be plugging anything and everything that the three of us. Yes, there's a third. We'll just call him Harry because he doesn't want to be referenced. He's a silent partner. Anything that we do, you'll know about. Be good. Be good.
Thanks again for listening to this episode of Real Tales from the Bar Side. Be sure to tip your bartenders and tip us by subscribing, liking, leaving us a review. That stuff helps like hell, and we really appreciate it. So thank you again. Hope you enjoyed yourself, and we'll catch you next week.